Luke chapter 14 is where we're at, back in the, in the journey with, with Jesus to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel. Uh, we could have picked easier gospels in terms of preaching and understanding and familiarity, but I've really enjoyed wrestling with Luke and diving into these passages and asking Jesus, what, um, what were you doing and what are you saying to, to us in, in this as well? Let me read a few verses from the start of Luke 14. And we're hoping to get to verse 24. We'll, we'll, we'll see how things go. Uh, but I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 to start off. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Some Bible translations would refer to that as dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Once again, we are in familiar territory with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Once again, we're at a table. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus, uh, somebody said, I can't remember the exact quote, but Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. All right, The Gospel is centered around lots of table fellowship. He's at a table, he's in a Pharisee's house, it's the Sabbath, and there's going to be a healing. We've seen this all before. It's what's called by some theologians a mirror miracle, as in Jesus is doing something that we've already seen him do. Just on the next page or the previous page of your Bible, Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath in, in chapter 13. Back in Luke 6, he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and he gets into trouble every time he does it. But the reason you have these repeated accounts that seem very similar is because Jesus is being very patient with the religious leadership and he is giving them chance to learn and to prove that they have learned from the previous experience and the experience before that. Did you learn anything when I did this before? And it's also lovely just a wee theme that you get in Luke. He's very keen that you see that the gospel is for everybody. That's why Luke has got shepherds in his nativity story. He wants you to see the gospel goes out to all of society. And in chapter 13, we have a woman healed on the Sabbath. And in chapter 14, we have a man healed on the Sabbath. Luke wants you to see that the gospel is going to everyone, not just certain parts of of society. And you see in, in verse one, he is being carefully watched, carefully watched. The the Pharisees, the religious people are not watching him because they want to learn. That they're not watching him. Um, I always think of you know the Incredibles. Have you seen the Incredible Pixar? And there's a, there's a cracking we scene in it where where what do you call him? Bob Parr. It was Bob Parr. I don't know, but he, Mr. Incredible. He's outside, and there's this wee kid just comes up on his tricycle and sits and gazes at him. And he asks the kid, you know, what are you waiting for? And the kid says, something incredible. There's anticipation that he's going to do something. And this wee kid on his tricycle wants to see it. These guys are not coming to see Jesus do something incredible. 
They're not watching to see something amazing. They are looking to see him make a mistake. This is what religion does. They're not gathering to celebrate what God is doing. They're not gathering to cheer Jesus on in in setting a life free. They are gathering with the mindset, we're watching him. And as soon as he gets something wrong, bang, we're onto it. That is when what happens when religion grabs the heart. And this, this disease, this dropsy, uh, is, is a buildup of fluid in the body. I think this is the only time it's mentioned in the Gospels. And I think there is a reason for it that we'll see as we go through the, the, the teaching that Jesus brings. So it, inor- it involves this buildup of fluid. It causes swelling. There was no way to treat it in the ancient world. Uh, mainly probably in the legs, just a, just a huge amount of swelling that people would be unable to walk at all, uh, certainly with a lot of pain and discomfort if they tried it. And one of the paradoxical things about dropsy is you've got all of this fluid in your body, but you're insatiably thirsty. You want more and more liquid, even though this buildup of liquid is what is hindering you. And this man, this, this again, this is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, a massive theme in Luke's gospel. This man is unclean according to the law. He should not have been there. They should not have invited him. They should not have sat with him at the table. It shows again their hypocrisy in terms of they say that they're so committed to the law of God, yet in order to catch Jesus, they will bring in this man who is unclean and and, and set him in the middle of of the table. See, religion has nothing to offer this man. Nothing, except to make a spectacle of him, except to use him. But Jesus, whether this is a trap or not, whether he's going to get in trouble for healing on the Sabbath or not, Jesus sees a person made in the image of God, needing compassion, needing mercy, needing help, and he will help him. And unlike the previous example in chapter 13, where Jesus heals on the Sabbath, in this case, he asks the Pharisees, first of all, for their opinion. In other words, he wants to know, have you learned anything. For us, it was two months ago, maybe three, since we saw this woman in Luke 13 healed on the Sabbath. For, for Luke's gospel, it is probably only a few days, maybe a couple of weeks. And Jesus wants to know, have you guys learned anything? This is a test. I showed you this. I demonstrated this. I explained this. Now is a test. Have you learned anything? And he puts them in a tight spot. Jesus is brilliant at doing this with religious people. Brilliant. He puts them in an absolute fix where if they go one way, they're in trouble. And if they go the other way, they're in trouble. If they say that it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, then they're changing their viewpoint that they previously held. And that is something, again, that religious people find very, very difficult because they're full of pride. And in order to say I was wrong or we were wrong or we're going to change our view on that involves overcoming that pride and that hardness of heart. So if they say it's okay, they have to change their viewpoint. And if they say it's not okay, then they're exposing the motive that they have for bringing this man into Jesus' presence. And it's lovely in verse 4 which says Jesus took hold of him. You could read that and think that Jesus just grabbed the guy and pulled him over. But he doesn't. He hugged him. 
at, at the at the very most he did a, you know a side hug you know the safe hug where you come up as at the at, at the very least he did that he may have completely embraced him but the the word implies he got close to the guy and he put his arm around him at least and his his question is similar to the question he asks in in chapter 13 if you have an ox if you have a child if something precious to you falls into the well on the sabbath day you don't just leave it there you pull it out and again they have nothing to say they have nothing to say the presence of god has a wonderful way of silencing religion and religion can creep into any of our hearts And the way to keep it silent and to keep it away is to just bask continually in the presence of Jesus. In his teaching, in his miracles, in his life, in worshipping him. The more we spend time with him, the more religion just has to shut up because it's got nothing to actually say. Jesus goes on in the passage to tell two parables. Now, I don't know about you. But I like wedding meals. I like wedding meals. Sometimes when I'm getting ready for a wedding and I have to drive a long distance somewhere and I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can really be bothered. Um, but then when I get there, and especially, and it's not just me being, being a bit of a sort of, uh, you know, in, enjoying my grub. I do enjoy my grub. But the meal, I love the meal. I've never got up from a meal at a wedding and thought, you know, that wasn't much good. Sometimes I've come away from services a wee bit confused about the, what, what, what was going on and thinking, right, that's a bit odd. Um, and, and sometimes it gets to the, the end of the evening and the music is really loud and irritating and I can't hear anyone and my throat is sore from shouting at the person beside me and I'm thinking, I want to go home. But the meal, I love the meal. Always. Always. There's something about a feast with a group of people that is so enjoyable, so rich. And Jesus says, my kingdom's like that. I'm going to tell you some parables about about my kingdom and I'm going to base them around a feast, a banquet. That's what it's like. Daryl Johnson says that Jesus calls us into the grand adventure of discipleship, a call to intimacy with God the Father, a life so full, rich, vibrant, lavish, and delicious that the most appropriate image is a banquet. That's the picture of the kingdom of God. It is people coming together for a feast, for a celebration, for a party. (laughs) For a party. It, It picks up in the Old Testament in Isaiah 25 where the promise is that on this mountain, I wonder what mountain that is, could it be Calvary outside Jerusalem? On this mountain... The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So the people in the Old Testament look forward to this promise of a coming banquet, a feast. And then at the end of your Bible in Revelation, we're told about the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's where it's all heading towards. So we get these these pictures that Jesus gives us of feasting. And at a meal here, he is going to give us some parables, some to do with how to act as a guest and some to do with how to act as a host. In verse 7, he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table and he told them this parable. 
The tables are turned now. Jesus arrived and the Pharisees were watching him in verse 1. Now he's the one doing the watching. He's watching how they behave. When they get together to have a feast, how do they behave? How do they arrange their seating plan at their meal? And he notices when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. Jesus is warning the Pharisees about their tendency to continually push themselves forward to try and get honor, to try and get status. The problem that he's addressing with these guys in this first part of the parable is pride. They want to be seen. They want other people to be impressed with them, to hear them, to see them, and to think they are amazing. So they will, at these meals, push themselves to get close to the top table, close to the host, because they see that as being the place of honor. Tom Wright says about pride that it is the great cloud which blots out the sun of God's generosity. If I think I deserve something, if I push myself forward to grasp something, then I am implying that I don't need God's grace. I don't need his mercy. I don't need his love because I deserve what it is I'm pushing for. And he says instead, when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says to them, don't push yourself forward for recognition. Be humble. Humble humility, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, it is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not putting yourself down. And, and, and Jesus says that, that those who try to push themselves forward and raise themselves up, they're going to be pushed down. But it is the humble that God will come and exalt, which if you read Philippians 2 is exactly what happened with Jesus. And it's interesting here that this man that is present at the meal, this man with dropsy, is actually a picture of the problem that the Pharisees have. His body is retaining fluid, and yet he is craving more and more and more fluid. These Pharisees are all into status. They're all into being recognized. They have a certain degree of status in society, and they are craving more and more and more. The Greek philosopher Diogenes, who, who was sort of in the, in the period in between the, the Testaments, said, as dropsies, as people with dropsy, though filled with fluid crave drink, so money lovers, though loaded with money, crave more of it, both to their demise. Jesus is calling out the fact that the Pharisees are full of something and they yearn for it more and more and more. And the thing they are full of is status and a desire for recognition. These meals were a way to show people that you have achieved high status in society and Jesus wants nothing to do with it. Jesus says, at my table, at my kingdom, all of the seats are the same. 
There is no top table. There are no special seats. But one of the things that we do, if we start pursuing our own status, our own sense of self-worth, we just get incredibly thirsty. And we want more of it, and we want more of it, and we want more of it. And that's where these guys are. Jesus tells them that whenever they host a dinner in verse 12, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Another wonderful insight from Tom Wright. The small-mindedness of the Pharisees, which pushes itself forward and leaves others behind, is now confronted with the large-hearted love of God. The Pharisees are small-minded in their craving for status. They push themselves forward. They push others down. But now they're confronted by Jesus with the large-heartedness of God's love, which reaches out to everybody and brings in those who cannot repay, who cannot reciprocate, who cannot invite you back. That's the sort of meals that Jesus wants people to have. So he's urging in this first parable that people would have humility instead of pride, and that people would have a table that is open to everyone. Even those who can't repay, we choose to bless people in the knowledge that God will see it, and God will repay it. We don't have to worry about whether or not they can repay. Last Sunday morning was, for me, I don't know if anybody else sort of felt this way or if it was just me, but I thought it was class last Sunday morning. I loved every minute of it, from the, 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 the chat before, the worship, the word. Linda was speaking last week the worship afterwards, and then the meal. And I did my usual thing at a meal where I'd start, I'd have my first bowl of soup at one place, I was over here, and then I'll get a second bowl of soup and I'll move over somewhere else. It's all about the gospel, it's about ministry, okay? And, and then I'll get my coffee and I'll get a bun and I'll move somewhere else. And then I'll go and get a second bun and I'll move, and I just buzz around, you know, strategically just go around the room. And, and try to, to get chatting to a few different people. And I ended up towards the end, I was over at the, the back corner there, and I just had a moment, I was sitting, and Ariel was, was on the floor, she was crawling around the floor, and she was, she was grabbing hold of my shorts on the chair and, and pulling herself up beside me. And I, and I just had a moment where I looked across the room and I thought, this is beautiful. Sorry if that's too much for you, but you're beautiful. You are the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And I, I looked at the, the connections and the conversation and people's faces and body language. I just thought, this is beautiful. And I was so thankful. I was so, so thankful. And just before the meal last week, there was a wee moment out in the, in the hallway with Ellie. And it was one of those moments in conversation where somebody says something that, that, that's just, you know, straightforward, normal part of conversation. But as you reflect on it afterwards, especially when reflecting on a passage like this, it starts to take on a wee bit more weight. So our current slide on the screen is a quote from Tom Wright. Now we have a quote from Ellie. She said to me, is there another table? 
because for some reason, I don't know why, but we ended up usually with five tables out. For some reason last week, we only had four out. Uh, and she said to me out in the hallway, is there another table? We're going to need a few more seats. And sure enough, got another table out of, the, out of the store and away we went. And then I just started to think about it in the days after that. Is there another table? We're going to need more seats. And this is, this is, not, just, this is not just about growth. This is how do we create more space? Don't think about the building. How do we create more space for people to come and sit in the beauty of the presence of Jesus that we sat in last week? The Pharisees push for status and the Pharisees, and and we're not Pharisees and we don't just look after our own. But Jesus said to them that whenever you give a dinner, and we're not just talking about communion meals, we're talking about the feast of the presence of Jesus, the hope that he brings, the, 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 the ethos of table being called table as being a place where people who would not normally rub shoulders with Jesus, but we create a space where, where the outcast, the people who would have been, wouldn't have been allowed to go to the temple, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the poor, how, how do we create space where they can come? And don't just think Sunday mornings. Don't just think and get out and invite people to the the Sunday morning service. No, think beyond that. Think bigger than that. Think other times. How do we get another table, more seats? Because there's a feast and we want people to enjoy that feast. And and as I've thought about this, the challenge is, is to figure out ways, again, of inviting the outcast to the table like David and Mephibosheth, who he should have killed as a descendant of King Saul, David's enemy, but he invited him to his table and treated him as his own son. Ask for the Holy Spirit to give us creativity as to how we can invite people to the feast of of Jesus and the kingdom of God, how we can create space where people who even on a Sunday morning, even the beauty of our meal on a Sunday morning and the soup and the nice buns and the the love in the room, it would be too much for someone to walk into first time. How do we create in-between spaces? What Howard Schultz called the third place, what I call the interface where the river meets the sea. How do we create those spaces and put out another table and get more seats so that others may come and join the feast, and particularly those who can't reciprocate, who can't pay back. That, for me, is one of the the real challenges that that has come out of this this passage. Always listen. Always listen to the Spirit. You know, sometimes you... I'm sure you've experienced that, and I've experienced other times as well, where I've been chatting to someone, and as part of the conversation, something's said, and they don't mean anything, and they're not... They don't sort of put their hands on you and change their facial expression and say, Thus saith the Lord. They just say something and then you go away and you start to ponder and you're like, is the Spirit speaking here more, more than I realize? Jesus then goes into his second parable in the same context. In, in verse 15, one of the guys at the meal, so Jesus has just said whenever you're, you're, you're given one of these meals, invite the poor and the crippled, there's probably a wee bit of tension around the table. Right. They're probably feeling the heat of Jesus just sort of poking them a wee bit here. And uh, one of them says, maybe trying to lighten the atmosphere, I don't know. He says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. 
you know, token statement just to try to, everybody breathe, it'll be okay, let, you know, let, me, let me say something. So Jesus tells another parable. He says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So what happened in the village was, if you were having a banquet, you invited everybody. Small village, close, tight-knit community. Everybody knows each other. Everybody was invited to, to the feast. So, so this, this guy in the village is having a banquet, and he would have done a wee bit of research in advance. He didn't have the Google form that we have, but he would have had a way in advance of figuring out how many people are going to come. And the basis of how many people said they were going to come, he decides how many animals he needs to slaughter, uh, how, how much food to gather up, how much wine to get, whatever it is. He, he gets all the supplies and he starts to prepare for the feast. And at that point, a countdown has begun and the feast is going to happen. It's not going to be postponed. It's not going to be rearranged. There is no refrigeration for, for the food to, to be kept for another time. It is going to happen and it is going to happen when he said it would happen. And these people invite, you know, these invitees, they accept the invitation. Uh, the last wedding we were at, sort of, you know, between the, the service and the meal or, or, you know, just before the meal, a wedding planner walked through the, the venue ringing a bell to say, right, it's ready. <laughs> You know that where you're sitting in the afternoon, you're looking at your watch and you're wondering, is there a wee board somewhere that says the schedule of the day and what time food's coming because I'm starving. Uh, and, and you see this person coming, ringing the bell and your heart leaps for joy. And to, to refuse to attend the meal at that point when it's been planned and paid for and prepared to just say, yeah, do you know what? I'm just going to sit here and not bother would be pretty ignorant. And the point of the parable is the only ones, Jesus is talking about the banquet again of the kingdom of God, the only ones who will actually get to enjoy that are those who, whenever the bell is rung, <laughs> the call is sounded, stop what they're doing and make their way to Jesus. Because we're going to see a bunch of excuses here from people who will not stop what they're doing and actually go and follow Jesus. Have you ever known the disappointment of organizing something on the basis of those who said they would be there, but then don't turn up? And you've maybe prepared for 15 or 20 and you've got about 10 or 12. But the food's still there, still cooked, still needs to be eaten. And no matter how many times I move around the room, I can't get through it all myself. <laughs> but you're disappointed because you wanted more there. You thought more would be there. And the excuses start to come in. They all alike begin to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Now, I'm not a farmer. <laughs> I'm not one who has ever purchased land. But I would imagine you probably look at it before you buy it. Some people might not. <laughs> but I would say it would be good practice to go and actually look at it. Check it out and then say, yes, I'll buy it. But this guy gives the impression, I've bought a field, I've agreed to buy a piece of land, I'm going to go and see what it's actually like. Nonsense. Garbage. That is not a valid reason for missing the meal. This, this, this word that he uses, I must go, it's, it's a word to do with necessity. This meal, Jesus is offering a meal. Jesus is offering a feast 
of life in his presence and intimacy with God. And this guy's, no, I must do something else. My priority list has got something higher. It's like buying a new house over the phone without seeing it. And then at some later stage, going to, you know, saying, I, you know, I can't go to your mail. I've bought this house. I need to go and see where it is, what the neighborhood's like, what size the garden. It's just nonsense. And then there's a second excuse comes where a guy says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. This is like saying, I can't go to your meal. I've just bought a used car over the phone and I'm on my way down to the dealership to see what color it is, what brand it is, how many miles are on it and whether or not it'll start. It's nonsense. The guy's not, no one's going to buy, five yoke of oxen is a lot of livestock in, in those days and he's not going to buy those without checking them out. Again, he's making excuses. His business is more important. That's his priority, his money. And the, the thriving of his business is more important than sitting and feasting on Jesus. And then the third guy, he comes along. Like the first two say, please excuse me. Then the third guy comes along and just says, I just got married. I can't come. <laughs> and that's that. And there's no excuse me or no sorry. It's just can't come. Can't do it. She won't let me. Now, again, nonsense. Weddings went on for, for days. In, in the ancient world. If there had been a wedding feast in that village prior to this feast that's being arranged, the host would have known about it and wouldn't have arranged another feast at the same time. Okay, so this is just nonsense. There were, you know, in the Old Testament, if someone had just got married, they were allowed a year off from military duty and things like that, but it didn't stop them going to meals. All of these excuses are completely invalid. They all show a people who are prioritizing other things over the presence of God. Do we do that? Do we do that? I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about missing church, right? No, I'm talking about sitting down and feasting with Jesus. About him being priority in our lives. Are there other things that just continue come in and you and you are continually making decisions consciously or subconsciously? This is more important. This is more important. This is more important. And there are times in life when your job can get quite demanding and when business can get demanding and other things can sort of start to take over your time for a short season and, and you and you and you, you fight against it and, and hopefully things come around again. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying in general is your priority to sit and feast with Jesus or do you keep on making excuses to not do that? Is your priority to create a place where others can sit and feast with Jesus or do you make excuses for that? Possessions are a huge problem in Luke's gospel. Jesus mentions it over and over and over again in the parable of the sower and the seeds. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they don't mature. They're in. Boom, I'm, I'm, I'm in. But as time goes by, life closes in, and suddenly the, the, the little plant gets choked by possessions and cares of life. Or the, the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
It's a theme throughout this gospel about how our stuff and the work that we do to get stuff chokes us. I can't spend more time with you, Jesus. I'm just too busy doing important things. And our excuses reveal what we think about the host of the banquet. Our excuses reveal what we think. Jesus, I've got better offers. I've got better offers. You're not worth the hassle of me sitting with you and allowing you to transform my life and my heart. I've got more important things to do. Visualize, this is quite potent, but visualize yourself standing at the cross and telling Jesus, I'm just too busy. (laughs) You're not worth it. You're not worth me making adjustments in my life to feast with you. But the feast is going to go on. The servant comes back, tells the master that um, you know, people are making excuses. The master's angry and he orders the servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. The same people that Jesus mentioned earlier at the same meal who should be invited to our feasts. He will fill his house. He will not delay the feast. It is going to happen. And if the ones on the original guest list refuse to come, he will still invite others. The house will be filled. And the servant is sent out to the margins, the streets, the alleys of the town where people would have been begging. It takes effort to find the people that the master wants to have at the feast. They don't tend to hang about the master's door because they're not expecting to be invited to a feast. So the servant has to go out, has to be proactive, has to go and engage with the town, with the community, with the society round about him to find those who will come, to find those who are on their own, to find those who are hungry, who who are hopeless and who need to sit and feast with Jesus. There is a degree of effort required Prayer, vital, not enough. There has to be a searching. Jesus came in this gospel to seek and to save the lost. To follow him in discipleship is also to be involved in that sense of seeking. And as a church, we want to go seeking. And we want to start finding out there those who can be invited to sit with Jesus. And they come, but there's still room. So the master tells the servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. Third invitation is issued. The net is thrown out wider and he's to go to beggars, travelers in the highways and hedges and compel them. Compel sounds like force them to come in. It's not really the right word. It's more a case of urge them to come in, encourage them to come in. These guys are right out on the margins. They don't know the host of the meal. They haven't a clue what he's like. The ones who were originally invited, they they know the host. The original ones invited in this context represent the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They know a lot about God and yet they refuse to come. But as the net goes wider and wider, we're now inviting people who don't know the host. We're now outside the village, outside the city limits, out into the highways and hedges, and 
They need to be encouraged. They need someone to go and say to them, this is what he's like. You know, by your life, by your acts of kindness and love, whether that is over a burger at the wreck or whatever it is, but there's a sense of creating that space where you can make contact and you can start to show people, I know you don't know the host, but I want you to see what he's like. I want to tell you what his character is. I want to show you his love and his compassion and his kindness and his heart for the outcast. You get me? You, you, you just invite people to church. Nothing's going to happen because they have an idea of what church is like and what Jesus is like and what God is like and what Christians are like. They need to be encouraged, urged and told and shown what the host is like. And those who were originally invited, ironically, we get to the end of the passage. They're not there. The Pharisees who are squabbling about getting the best seats at the table miss the meal. The ones who who were first invited don't get there. And that's not because they weren't invited. It's because they did not accept the invitation. Their pride stopped them. Their arrogance, their dropsy of being continually thirsting for more status, more recognition. Me, 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 me. Instead of going out to the marginalized and the outcast. Prevented them from getting to the meal. This is the last time... Jesus dines with the Pharisees. Last chance. The kingdom party will still happen. The seats will be filled. And those who, won't, who wanted the best seats don't get any seat. And those who were shunned by the religious leaders will end up sitting in seats of honor at the feast. Tom Wright again to close. Christians reading this must work out in their own churches and families, what it would mean to celebrate God's kingdom so that the people at the bottom of the pile, at the end of the line, would find it good news. It isn't enough to say that we ourselves are the people dragged in from the country lanes to enjoy God's party. Party guests, that's us, are then expected to become party hosts in their turn. One of the things that we would have said over and over again at Forge a few years ago with church planting, church pioneering network, over and over again, the question would be asked, what does the good news look like here? For us, we were, we were doing that over in Scotland. What does the good news look like in Glasgow? What does the good, good news look like in this housing development in Dundee where there are a thousand houses and one shop and nothing else? What does the good news look like in Tandragee? What does it look like to people? How do we celebrate the kingdom? How do we live out our lives in in this place? What are the things that we do to celebrate God's kingdom so that the people at the bottom of the pile, at the end of the line, would look at it and say, oh, that's good news for me. That's good news for me. I want to go and I want to feast at that kingdom table. We, you know, we celebrate and we're going to sing now and part of our, our celebration is that we are the guests. We are the ones who are invited. We are the ones that Jesus has come and found and brought to the feast. But I want us to be challenged that we go out. We're guests who have now become hosts and 
have become agents for the supreme host, Jesus himself. And we are to go out on his behalf and figure out how to set another table and how to get a few more seats so that the beauty, and I mean, last week, it was beautiful. We don't realize, I think, how beautiful it is, how special it is. And we've got to continually be thinking, oh, we've got to get other people to enjoy this feast of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your amazing wisdom in this passage, Lord, how you deal with these people. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the heart that you have for those who are in the highways and hedges, those who are in the streets and alleys, because you want them, Lord, you want them to feast at your table. So Lord, would you do something by the power of your spirit, would you do something now in our hearts that does not leave us content to be feasting at your table ourselves? But as we feast, that we're looking around and thinking, boy, we need to get another table. We need to get more seats. We need to invite the outcast. We need to share this beautiful thing that you are doing. Lord, give us creativity. Give us insight. Give us favor. Give us resources and capacity, Lord. And help us to make sure that your table is filled. That there's no sense at the end that there were empty seats and we weren't agitated about it, that we weren't concerned about it. Thank you for the fun day that we had, Father, a few weeks ago. And as we start to plan another one, oh God, let this be a vision in our hearts that we cling to of going out into the streets and alleys and showing them what the host is like. Not preaching to them about what the host is like, but showing them. Showing them, Lord. Give us compassion for the lost, for the poor and the maimed, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Break our hearts for them, Lord. Unsettle us, Lord. Amen. Amen.